0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Seth Hanlon from the Center for American Progress joins us to discuss the Republicans' proposed tax reform that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. I look forward to working with the members of Congress gathered here today to pass the reform and the massive tax cuts that our country desperately
1: needs to thrive, to grow, to prosper. If we do this, we will create millions of new jobs for our people and bring many, many businesses back to our shores. When Donald Trump was talking about this plan over the last few days, he talked about focusing on the middle class and not helping the wealthy. The plan is a major disappointment because it so deviates from everything the president said. He's walking the walk. He's sorry. He's talking the talk. But this plan shows he is not walking the
0: walk. That was President Donald Trump and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer it probably comes as no surprise that Democrats and Republicans would view tax reform differently. If reform is understood to create change, it could certainly be argued that the Republican plan achieves that goal. But the question remains, what would that change look like? Joining me to discuss the Republican tax reform plan is Seth Hamlin. Hamlin is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on tax and budget policy. Seth Hamlin, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: President Trump recently made the case for tax reform and stating, and I'm quoting, by eliminating the tax breaks and special interest loopholes that primarily benefit the wealthy, our framework ensures the benefits of tax reform go to the middle class, not the highest earners. Seth Hanlon, is that your understanding of the Republican tax reform proposal?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think everything you just said, like, the opposite of that is actually the truth. Um, so, I mean, for starters, this plan that, the, that President Trump and the Republicans put out, I, I think we should be clear, it's not tax reform. I mean, if the tax reform would be cleaning up the tax code, would be getting rid of special loopholes, uh, simplifying the code, that's not what they're doing. These are tax cuts, and they're tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans and for corporations. Um, the uh, a nonpartisan institute here in town called the uh, the Tax Policy Center looked at the tax plan that uh, that was put out last week, and in t- by by the year 2027, 80 percent of all the tax cuts go to the highest income 1 percent of Americans. Um, and it's not just tax cuts, it's special new loopholes that are the exact opposite of what Trump is claiming that he's doing. He says that we're getting rid of special loopholes. turns out he's actually creating large new ones, including a, a, a very large one for himself.
0: Yeah. Well, no, you know, he, um, we had Dean Baker on uh, a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and, and we talked about, would you, would you talk about some of the, I'm sure you're talking about the uh, the pass-through and the corporate pass-through, and uh, go ahead and talk about those, if you would.
1: Sure, sure. So, um, so the plan cuts taxes for corporations. So it cuts the, the corporate rate, right? So large corporations pay a, uh, a nominal rate of 35%. Of course, in reality, they pay less than that because of all the deductions and ways they can move profits to other countries and, and so on. But, you know, at least in theory, they pay 35% on whatever their taxable income is. Um, and then so then the Trump GOP plan cuts that nearly in half to 20%. Um, so and of course, you know, under the plan corporations will be paying less than 20% because of all the deductions and loopholes. So um, that that's basically a $2 trillion tax cut uh, for large profitable corporations. Um, and then on the uh, on the pass-through side, right? So pass-through businesses. Um, as you probably discussed with Dean, the pass-through businesses are businesses that are not corporations. So they're, they could be partnerships or LLCs or um, what are called S-corporations or sole proprietorships. Um, and so most businesses in the country are pass-throughs, um, including small businesses. So, what, uh, so Trump and the Republicans are saying this is a small business tax cut. Um, but actually what they're doing is just cutting the top rate for... for paid by the owners of pass-through businesses. So um, so it's it's if you're someone like Trump himself or if you're, let's say, a hedge fund manager that owns an investment partnership um, and you're in the top bracket now, they're going to cut that rate down to 25%. Um, but, of course, most businesses, and definitely almost all small businesses, already pay 20, uh, are in the 25% bracket or lower. So they're actually getting nothing out of this new loophole. It's only the... Very high-income owners of pass-through businesses, uh, hedge fund managers, private equity, um, lawyers, lobbyists, real estate people like Donald Trump, that are going to get the an enormous windfall from that tax cut.
0: You know that sort of go- also goes back to the whole issue. I'm not. Uh, I don't want to re- litigate his his um, failure to uh, release his tax returns, mm-hmm. but but it does sort of speak to that. In that we don't have the tax returns, and so the president in this case could be offering something that du- is a direct benefit to himself.
1: Absolutely. And I think we should l- re and litigate that issue. And I think it's outrageous that Congress would pass an enormous tax, uh, tax cut that's going to benefit Donald Trump. And, of course, he's out there saying, I'm not going to get anything. This is going to raise my taxes. Um, I don't. I don't think there's any chance that that's actually true. I mean, I think it's abundantly clear um, that, and just uh, simply obvious that this would give him a huge tax cut. Um, but you know, he could prove that by releasing his tax returns, and Congress can actually actually has the power to obtain his tax returns. Um, even just the tax committee can do that. They can just have a vote and and get his tax returns and see what deductions he's claiming. Um, see what rates he's paying and figure out the truth on how this plan would actually affect them. Um, but they've actually not done that so far. So I think it's outrageous that they're going forward with this tax reform that he's proposing, you know, that members of his cabinet like, you know, Steve Mnuchin and his advisor Gary Cohn are proposing. Um, and they're claiming this is going to raise their taxes without offering any proof. And so, I, you know, to, to go forward without without uh, having seen his tax returns is just uh, pretty outrageous.
0: You know, I, I can imagine some of our listeners um, saying, we're talking, already talking about the alternative minimum tax and talking about the uh, pass through the corporations, and I can hear them saying to themselves, well, you know, that doesn't sound like you're simplifying the pass code, the tax code to me. So, right. so this is anything but a simplification. It's just, is it just rhetoric?
1: It is just rhetoric, yeah. No, definitely. Um, I mean, I think when they say simplification, they say, well, we're going to have, uh, you know, three, just three tax rates instead of seven tax rates, which exists, um, which exists now, but, um, that's not the hard part of filing taxes, right? So once you've calculated your taxable income, you can, you, the rates are just applied automatically. I mean, people use software or you can just look up the tax tables. It doesn't matter at all how many rates there are. So, but that's all a, um, Really, a subterfuge here to, to compress the rates to make them more, um, make them flatter. So, what they do under this plan is actually raise the top, the bottom rate to 12 percent, from which is it's now. So the rates now range from 10 percent to 39.6 um, percent, and they they compress those rates. So now the bottom one goes up to 12 percent, and the top one comes down to 35 percent. So this has nothing to do with simplification. Its, it's just all about reducing those tax rates at the very top.
0: Well, we'll staying if we could just a moment, just about the, the nature of simplification. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I know this, this, this is your area of expertise. Would you offer that um, is the tax code in need of simplification? And if so, how would, how would that reform look? And, and not necessarily tax cuts, but how would that actual reform look?
1: It's a great question. It's a great question. So, yes, I mean, uh, absolutely the tax code is in need of simplification. So I think the important thing would be to lay out principles that are uh, basically, you know, bottom line um, baselines for what an overall tax reform should look like. And I think that the number one principle should be, it shouldn't be a tax cut for people, at the, it shouldn't wind up being a huge tax cut for people at the top. Um, and number two should be, you know, people in the middle and the bottom shouldn't get a tax increase, right? So to have a kind of neutrality principle um, guiding the whole whole project is just critically important. And that was the case the last time they did tax reform in 1986. Republicans and Democrats agreed. This isn't about cutting people, taxes for people at the top. It's about simplification. So then, you know, once you sort of lay down those principles, you can get to work and there's absolutely things you can do to simplify tax filing. So, you know, there's a number of overlapping provisions. So like, you know, I, I have kids and I take, um, there's, a number of different provisions for to help people with child care, but they're not very well designed um, and they also overlap, so you have to do these ridiculously complicated uh, calculations to claim one deduction and at the same time another credit. So you can clearly consolidate those and it will go a long way in, in getting this simplification. Um, and then there's m- many more things you can do. There's lots of credits for higher education um, that can be consolidated and simplified. Um, and, then, and then, you know, I think the, the main thing is get rid of the special loopholes that create complication. Like if there's a special, like, for example, the, he- the carried interest loophole that a lot of hedge fund managers take, it's a, it's a kind of like special loophole. And so what they do is organize, you know, there's a lot of organization and tax planning to try to get themselves into that loophole. So if you cut that out, that's a simplification because then, you know, they pay the regular t- tax rate um, but this plan does the opposite it creates the l- new loophole that i was talking about for for pastor businesses um so definitely things you can do it's just i i don't really see this project uh or this tax plan as accomplishing them at all
0: you know one of the things that i have noticed thus far and you're probably closer uh much closer to it than i am is that most of the conversation has, um, at least early on, has been not about reform, but as you stated earlier, about tax cuts. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, 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 Mick Mulvaney, the director of the White House uh, Office of Budget but, uh, Management and Budget, right. um, it, he offered that it was the tax code that was keeping America from consistently realizing three percent growth. And I wondered how how you responded to that talking point.
1: Yeah yeah um, so you know I think I mean to be clear like a good a good well-designed tax reform could uh, be helpful for the economy um, but that's not what they're doing here and also it's just totally unrealistic to think that the ta- that any changes in the tax code would be able to boost growth growth by that amount I mean to be clear so the you know mainstream forecasters and the you know, almost all economists in the Congressional Budget Office think we're going to grow at about two percent going forward. So to bump that to three percent is like a fifty percent increase. Like, there's no single policy change, or in fact, there's probably no set of policy changes that would get us to that amount uh, of growth. And and we definitely shouldn't sort of bank on that amount of growth. Uh, if it happens, that's great. But we definitely shouldn't bank on that amount of growth to. And then say that that growth is going to pay for our tax plan, because then, and we've seen this before over and over again. Uh, when the growth doesn't materialize, we have huge deficits, and then, um, and then of course, there's a big push to cut Medicaid, to cut education. Um, so that's you know that that's happened at the state level, and it's definitely happened at the federal level, like with the Bush Bush tax cuts. Um, so, and then the other thing is, I you know, these the kinds of tax plans that they're discussing are. The same kinds of so sort of trickle-down tax cuts uh, that we've seen before and that have just proven to fail um, in the Bush years, and then you know the opposite has been <laughs> proven to succeed uh, when um, President Clinton and President Obama made high earners uh, pay more of their fair share. The economy grew stronger than when we cut taxes on them uh, during the Bush years. So I think the policies are actually moving in the in the other direction, but certainly completely unrealistic. I think that, we'll, that this plan will have would produce 3% growth.
0: Um, forgive me for a momentarily digress, but when you were explaining the math they were using, I couldn't help but think, isn't that the same math that uh, Bernie Madoff used for yeah, a, yeah. A, a number of years to, to yeah. have unbelievable returns when Wall Street was hovering at a, you know?
1: I, I think it's, it's the same approach, right? So it's like, it's like you, you figure out what the growth is going to be and then you backfill all the numbers based on that, you know? So yeah, I called, and when the when they put their budget out, and they said, they said their, their tax plan was going to create two trillion dollars in revenue by cutting taxes, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I said it was. I said it was the Bernie Madoff budget. So we're definitely seeing that kind of that kind of approach. And there and so you know, there's these there's nonpartisan you know experts and scorekeepers in Congress that are not Republicans, not Democrats. They're the Congressional Budget Office, and then there's a tax tax counterpart called the Joint Tax Committee. And they produce nonpartisan objective uh, estimates of what the cost is going to be and what the e- economic effects are going to be and we're seeing like as we saw with healthcare care um, we're seeing with tax already they're talking about not using you know not using those estimates which are um, and just throwing them out and, and sort of picking their own picking their own numbers um, which would be unprecedented
0: Um. S- you know, it struck me um, that um, the proposed tax cuts uh, that that the Trump administration is putting forth, when you look at the recent history, and I'm, I'm starting recent being starting in 1981, I'm thinking about the Reagan tax cuts, right? And um, and we and, and, there's, and we already know there will be no corresponding cuts to to offset. Uh, spending cuts to offset the tax cuts. We know that won't happen, so we can just take that off the table. The, the Reagan tax cuts got us in excess of $200 billion in debt, and then the Bush cuts in 01 and 03. That's about $2 trillion in debt. I mean, is there any evidence that you are aware of that tax cuts ever pay for themselves?
1: No. I mean, it's like a... It's like a uh there, it's along the same lines of saying their earth is flat or, you know, up is down. I mean, tax cuts never pay for themselves. I mean, I think they're even the, um, even conservative economists who believe strongly in the, uh, you know, value of supply-side tax cuts, in other words, cutting taxes on corporations and businesses and high-income people, even they, um, like you know, for example, during the Bush administration, even they wouldn't claim that tax cuts would pay for themselves. They would claim that tax cuts would pay for a fraction of themselves. So, in other words, like there might be you know we might get ten or twenty percent of the revenue back in terms of you know uh, uh, positive effects on the economy, and then you know people would pay higher tax pay pay more in taxes, um, but. It's a—it's just a crazy proposition to say the tax cuts will, will pay for themselves, and then and then the other thing is that over time, if we increase budget deficits uh, over time, that could very well slow growth, and therefore the um, the revenue effect could be even even worse, and then we would of course have to pay interest on, on all of those uh, all of the extra deficits that are created.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, um, because you, you, you follow Congress closely, that it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to be a deficit hawk means your party is in the minority. That that the argument for deficits is not nearly as fervent uh, when one is in the majority. So as a result, even, even people advocating for tax cuts sort of become quasi-Keynesian, Mm-hmm. To the extent that, oh, we can live with differences for a while, which is sort of king's argument to, to to grow your way out. So, yep. how do how do you square that?
1: Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's so. I guess I'll t- say two things. I mean, so first of all, the flip flop that and the, the one eighty that a lot of Republicans have been doing this, and it 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 almost happened like the day that Trump took over for Obama, right? Like yeah. the flip flop that they've done is just gobsmacking. So the Mick Mulvaney, you know, he's, the, he's Trump's budget director, but just a few years ago with, when President Obama was in office, was threatening to shut down the government and default on our debt, right? They, they had a, a, we had a huge crisis in the summer of 2011 because people like Mick Mulvaney, who was in Congress then, threatened to default on the debt if we didn't pass legislation to reduce budget deficits, right? And, and he got a reputation as being a def- deficit hawk. And then just this morning, of course, what he wants to do is cut spending, not necessarily reduce the deficit. And then this morning he said, well, we actually, you know, he's pushing for tax cuts now, so he said, well, we actually need higher deficits. And it's just like a stunning, like, you know, head-spinning comment from someone like Mick Mulvaney. He's pulled a full 180. Um, and then I'd also say, you know, this is really, like, maybe I'm biased, but I think this is really a Republican phenomenon. And I think Democrats have been fairly consistent about you know, think about not running up deficits, um, whether they're in power or out of power. So, like, during the Clinton presidency, he raised taxes in his first year of office, and that brought down deficits so much that by the end of his presidency, we had a budget surplus. And President Obama, um, you know, we passed health care reform, expanded health care to 20 million people, but it was was fully paid for and then some. So the Affordable Care Act actually reduced deficits. Um, so I think the um, maybe I'm biased, but I think the uh, the hypocrisy is is uh, is pretty one sided.
0: Well, in the, in the spirit of uh, complete honesty, it was Mulvaney who I had in mind when I said quasi Keynesian to just right. <laughs> so I, I, I just uh, that's who I had in mind when I said it. So yeah, he's like it's
1: like a born again born again Keynesian.
0: Right. Um, I wonder. You know, the Republicans. Um, the con- control congress and the white house seem to be utilizing in my view at least early on the same playbook for tax reform that they use for the failed efforts of for repealing the affordable care act that it's more or less backroom deals i mean they're sort of uh, assuring any you know any scoring um... They're, they're doing the very things that john mccain bemoaned in his opposition to the health care repeal and, and i wonder does, does this seem like an effective strategy to get the requisite votes to get something passed?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think the number one strategy, and, and I don't think there's any, wor- any other word for it. I mean, the number one strategy is just lying, right? I mean, on health care, and I don't put that mildly. Like, I've been in Washington a while and worked with Republicans a lot. And even during the Bush administration, I mean, they certainly had credibility issues. But there wasn't the sort of, like brazen, bold-faced, like, easily disprovable lies. Um, and so, you know, when you have the Trump administration saying no one's going to lose their health care under our bill, and then, CB, you know, the Congressional Budget Office and everyone else said, well, actually 30 million people are going to lose their health care. We're seeing the same things with taxes. So they're saying, you know, wealthy people <laughs> wealthy people don't get a tax cut. Well, they're actually eliminating the state tax, which is literally a tax on large amounts of wealth uh, and not to mention the other elements of the plan so I think there's just um, you know and, and of course saying this plan is focused on the middle class and, and and on small businesses and things that are just not true at all so I think there is um, you know I think they're speaking to um, uh, they're in a bubble you know and I think that you know if you listen to Fox News or something you're probably not going to hear the facts about their plan so I think they're speaking to a um, you know, a core group of people, um, but not to the broader American public, who I think, uh, you know, it doesn't support this tax plan and sees it for what it is.
0: Now, is there, in your view, um, is, what is the judicious role for tax cuts in general, in your view?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I think at this point we don't, we don't, we shouldn't be cutting taxes on net. Um, I think we need revenue at this point. Um, we have an aging population. Um, you know the baby boomers are retiring and drawing on Social Security and Medicare. So I think overall right now it's not the time for it's not the time to cut taxes in general. Um, now that said, um, you you know we could certainly uh, make the tax code fairer in a way that overall uh, you know either keeps revenues the same or increases it by closing loopholes at the top and then creating, um, you know, targeted tax cuts for, for people at the bottom. You know, the earned income tax credit, for example, helps people uh, go, to, you know, go to work. It rewards people for working, helps them support their families. So that's the type of thing we can total... Those are productive tax cuts and they're affordable tax cuts, and we can pay for them by offsetting tax increases on, the, on, on people with high incomes. Um, and I also think there's a role when the economy is in a recession... Um, as we did, you know, in 2008, and, and then when the economy was slow in 2010, having targeted tax cuts for people, uh, for families that are struggling to get by and that are, will spend the money um, if they get a bump in their paycheck. Um, but to have tax cuts for high-income people now uh, is just, the, uh, just the, the absolute opposite of what we should be doing.
0: And, and, and what you are offering, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, but you're offering tax cuts more so on the demand side than, right. than the supply side. And, and it is the demand side that is more likely to immediately get that money and put it back in the economy more so than the history of supply side. Would that be correct, sir?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then and the economic research shows this, right? So people people who um, with moderate incomes who are living paycheck, paycheck, paycheck to paycheck if they get a bump in their disposable income, they'll tend to spend it, and that will circulate through the economy and create jobs. Whereas, if we give a tax cut, let's say to to corporations that are already have record high, levels like of the pass through,
0: maybe like the pass through corporation, for example. <laughs> yeah, the
1: pass throughs, but also the you know the multinationals that have uh-huh. record high levels of cash. They're just going to have bigger piles of cash. They're not going to. There's no reason to think that more cash uh, will incent them to. Finally, invest or finally raise wages. If if they if if a mountain of cash was going to get them to do that, they would they would be doing so already.
0: And, and can you can you? I mean, and I, I accept your your point about um, the uh, getting the three percent, sustaining it. But but even if that were possible, can you get there and keeping keeping wages largely stagnant?
1: Good question. I mean, I think the what we've seen in the past is that. I mean, I guess the question is what. Uh, what I think what you're getting at is is that what we need is an equitable growth and shared shared growth in the economy, and not just total growth.
0: It just sounds better um, when you say it. And I don't say it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think obviously if if we were to boost overall growth, that that would probably be good. But for the you know, it, it would it would be good for the economy. I mean, we should certainly be be focused on not just boosting overall growth, but making sure that growth is, is broadly shared. This
0: um, so, so, so tax reform, and, and, and it seems like tax reform, uh, at least the rhetoric and supply side tax cuts are inextricably linked. Um, and I know you've written about this. Can we, can we, is there anything we can do void of gimmicks? I mean, you mentioned a couple things already, but is there something that we can that we should be looking at? That that um, I think tax reform tends to get in the weeds for a lot of people, yeah. and, and simpler sounds better. But mm-hmm. can we do this void of gimmicks?
1: Do tax reform void of gimmicks? Yeah, yeah. I think we can. Um, I think it's hard. I think it's really hard uh, because I, you know, um, getting rid of special loopholes that aren't justified, you're always going to, there's always going to be a constituency that fights harder for that than, you know, or fights more, you know, has a more intense interest in their own narrow loophole than the broader public interest in having a simple, fair tax code. So I think it's really, really hard. Um, I think there's no chance in doing that type of tax reform unless you lay out the ground rules in advance. Um... Because otherwise, it's just going to degenerate into, you know, giving away tax cuts to all, you know, all every comer, all the powerful, you know, all the powerful people that lobby. So you have to lay the ground rules, and those ground rules have to be: we're not going to, we're not going to bleed revenue because of all of our national needs on Social Security and Medicare and so on. Um, so we can't lose revenue, and we can't give. You know, it's just with inequality at record highs and um, the top one percent. Getting the benefit of basically all the gains that have happened in the last few decades, they cannot get a tax cut. So, if you lay out those principles, you can do it. And then the and then the third thing is it's got to be bipartisan, right? So, the 1986 tax reform was President Reagan working with congressional Democrats, um, and the thing was bipartisan from start to finish. Uh, and they went through the regular congressional procedures, um, you know, all through committees. It was deliberative. And um, they, and it was hard, um, but they passed the tax reform that lasted. It was, it, you know, improved the tax code and improved it for a long, you know, for a long time. Obviously, it's thirty years later now, but, um, and but we're seeing a partisan process right now. So the Republicans are trying to do pass this through a process called budget reconciliation, where they can pass it only with Republican votes. Um, so I think that's not sustainable. I mean, it's a formula for. For narrow tax cuts, but not actual tax reform.
0: And speaking of tax reform, and some of the language that people may be hearing um, over the next few weeks, because um, one of the criticisms ab- ab- about the um, one of the initial uh, sc- scoring on, the, on this proposed tax reform, what, some of the pushback was, um, well, there was no, they didn't use dynamic scoring. So, what is dynamic scoring, and how is it applied to something like tax reform?
1: Right. Um, yeah, this is an important issue. So dynamic scoring is, uh, it's the, so scoring just means, you know, when when it, any legislation comes up, um, it needs to be scored, which just means estimating what the budget effects are going to be, um, which is obviously not an easy thing to do because they're, you're kind of predicting the future. Um, but, you know, Congress has the Congressional Budget Office and it has the Joint Tax Committee that, that, that does these scores. Um, and so for tax legislation, um, they usually use non-dynamic scoring or conventional scoring, which basically means that they're going to estimate how people and, you know, how it's going to reduce revenues if we, you know, for example, cut rates. And they will also look at, you know, how people might respond, like if we, um, you know, cut the tax on one type of business, people might use that business form more than others. Um, but what they don't look at is the macroeconomic. Effects so the the effects on the overall economy from any tax reform, and so and the reason they don't is that it's just so uncertain uh, and just so impossible to predict, um, and so traditionally they have not used dynamic scoring. So dynamic scoring, se- under dynamic scoring, they take uh, they make an attempt to gauge what the long term macroeconomic effects are going to be, and then. Feed that back into what the what the effect on revenues is going to be, um, and I should say, like they're you know the, the idea of dynamic scoring is not crazy. Um, I, I think it's, and a lot of people think it's too uncertain and unreliable to use, and that we should be we should err on the side of the of being conservative and you know, and if there's a growth effect, you know that's bonus, but we shouldn't we shouldn't count on it. Um, but the, the idea of dynamic scoring is not crazy, but I think. What is very concerning is that some of the Republicans are talking about not just having the nonpartisan scorekeepers do dynamic scoring, um, but they're talking about cherry-picking uh, dynamic scores from outside groups or from uh, from I don't know where. But the point is, is that they're going to cherry-pick the, the score that meets their needs um, rather than relying on the nonpartisan scorekeepers. And so that, I think that, that goes be well beyond dynamic scoring, and it's just kind of focus scoring, if you will.
0: Uh, this may be um, more political than, than, than where you, you want to go or even cause you to look into the crystal ball. But, you know, I'm also struck by the fact that, um, I mean, President Trump in his rhetoric has m- been painstakingly clear in his rhetoric that this is geared toward the middle class. Um, everything I have read this, in this interview has done nothing to um, uh, me to think differently, says just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how can those two realities be squared and pass Congress?
1: You know, I I think only if they repeat things that are frankly lies over and over and over again so that people finally believe them. Um, uh, You know, I, I just think there's no way to actually square the reality and if there's any sort of fact, any reliance on a fact-based analysis here, um, or actual facts, um, there's no way that this will pass. I mean, these the sort of tax cuts for, like, the very wealthy and tax cuts for corporations are among the most, among the least popular, I mean, obviously, the most least popular things that we could do at this point. So they, they're just calling their plan something it's not. And I think, um, you know, it's only going to, it's only going to come to fruition if they, re- you know, repeat those things so many times that people, people believe them.
0: Seth Hamlin, Center for American Progress. Sir, thank you so much for joining us on the Public Morality today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate it.
0: That was Seth Hamlin from the Center for American Progress. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. I feel like former President Ronald Reagan during his 1980 presidential debate with Jimmy Carter saying to America, there you go again. I'm saddened and somewhat ashamed of this admission. The recent mass shooting in Las Vegas did not leave me shocked and dismayed. Saddened? Yes. Shocked? No. Come to expect it. Bill O'Reilly recently called the Las Vegas massacre the price of freedom. Sadly, he too may be right. We have reached the point that while attending a concert in Las Vegas, it's quite possible that someone heavily armed will rain down bullets from the 32nd floor of one of the city's newest hotels. Is it anywhere one can visit publicly in America and possess a reasonable expectation of safety? Has that ship sailed? If Columbine and Sandy Hook didn't awake our moral sensibilities toward gun violence, you can rest assured that the carnage in a Las Vegas casino will most likely do nothing beyond rehashing the predictable talking points and action. Or should I say, inaction. Those who are still hopeful will take the social media, offering prayers for the victims and their families, take several days to throw around the need for gun control. That will be countered with, now is not the time to discuss gun control, we need to mourn first. But once the amorphous mourning period is over, it is still not the right time to discuss gun control, keeping us in an arrested development of a dysfunctional status quo. Someone will undoubtedly offer what occurred in Las Vegas is due to its seedy reputation. How does that logic Explain what occurred on the campus of Virginia Tech University, an Army base in Fort Hood, Texas, or a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Congresspersons Gabby Giffords, a Democrat, and Republican Steve Scalise share a bipartisan bond of being victims to random shooting. I don't know what the answer should be. I do know it should be something beyond the NRA's hackneyed refrain. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. There were no good guys in Las Vegas. At least not until 59 confirmed dead and nearly 500 wounded. And it is doubtful that any good guys arrived with the requisite firepower to match the arsenal possessed by the perpetrator of this heinous act. Part of my frustration is any discussion on gun violence is linked to scrapping the Second Amendment. Compared to other developed countries, the United States has six times as many shootings as Canada and 16 times as many as Germany. On average, there is more than one mass shooting for each day in the United States, according to analysis conducted by Vox. There are no federal laws that ban semi-automatic weapons, military-style weapons, handguns, or limit high-capacity magazine ammunition which allows mass shooters to fire multiple bullets in a single round and in rapid succession, such as the case in Las Vegas. If one is bleeding profusely while swimming in the Great Barrier Reef, it's not surprising you will draw the attention of sharks. Should the same be said of the ease that guns, especially high-powered guns, are placed in the hands of those incapable of responsibility? There's always going to be a measure of risk associated with guns, but the ratio of guns in the United States currently sits at one per every citizen, and many, like me, do not own one. So I'm not going to get worked up, demand that our elected officials do something, send out tweets, pray for the victims, or change my Facebook profile to somehow honor those who needlessly died in this latest chapter that is a profoundly American narrative. I will not be titillated by the bombastic musings of cable news talking heads more concerned with the cadence of their rhetoric than viable solutions, nor will I listen to the hackneyed talking points that keep the country mired in this dysfunctional status quo. Is the proliferation of gun violence in America the cost to being a great nation? Is this what is meant by being the shining city on a hill? Is this the path toward that more perfect union? Normally I would say no. But this is not normal. So I will offer that it depends on whose definition of more perfect are we using. So the next time America is once again besieged by violent absurdity, like Ronald Reagan, I will simply say, there you go again. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh